All right, today's text is uh, Genesis 39, verses 1 through 10, and this is called the overseer of the house. And uh, Genesis 39, verse 1 says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the uh, Lord had made him prosper in all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was in all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in all the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, <clears throat> nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Well, if you were here during the previous sermons or if you just know the story of Joseph, he was up, he had the code of distinction, he had the job of overseeing what his brothers were doing, and he even had dreams which told him that his brothers would bow down to him. Things could not have been any better for Joseph, and yet within almost no time at all, things could not have been any worse. He was cast into a pit, he was sold to foreigners, and then he was taken fr uh, away from his family and his land to a people of foreign tongue and no knowledge of the Lord his God. It's probable, and I would hope that it would be the case that none of us here would ever come close to the life-changing disaster that Joseph faced. But Joseph, in this time of trial, he kept his faith, he kept his morals, and he kept his conduct pure and undefiled. He would make the best of the circumstances, and the Lord would be there with him through all of it. How blessed we are that we have the same assurances because of our faith in the hope and in the promises of God through Jesus Christ. Our text verse today comes from the 68th Psalm. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. After 17 years of family life, Joseph was alone and he was abandoned, having been sold by his brothers to an unknown fate. But God, who is in control, even when the events around us seem to show otherwise, was preparing to do wondrous things through this guy's life. This amazing journey, which will lead from slavery to the second highest position in all of Egypt, begins to unfold in today's verses. In our own lives, when it appears that things are going great, all of a sudden setbacks may come along which seem to end in complete defeat. And yet those setbacks may actually work to affect even greater things than would otherwise have come about. So are you content in the place that you're at? If you were to lose every single thing that you had today, would you be able to truthfully say, God is using this for even greater things in my life? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I assure you, he is tending to you even if it seems otherwise. 
bad things happen and you think, I, I just don't know why. He's right there with you. He's there with you in that storm. We know this is true. And why? Because it's the message which is found time and time again in God's word. What he desires of you is that you accept that and that you stand fast in it. And the way to do that is to know what his word says. And so, may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first being Joseph's faithful service. Verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. This is the Bible's customary way of relating events. Uh, the story ended back in chapter 37, and we had an insert story of chapter 38, and then as if skipping over that entire chapter of chapter 38, we go right back into the events of Joseph's life here in chapter 39. This type of pattern has been seen several times as God unveils this marvelous tapestry of the different pieces of history, which all will eventually lead us to Jesus. It's as we're, if we're watching this movie and you got these different scenes that are being shown back and forth. And only at the end of the movie is everything brought into focus. Before that, though, things seem to be all disjointed and irrelevant. But when the final scene comes up, you suddenly say to yourself, ah, now I see what was going on. This is how the Bible's working. It's heading towards this great climax, but it keeps you guessing along the way. Lord, I'm not sure what is being said here in your word. It doesn't match with the events that I just read. I'll keep reading, though, to see where it ends. I bet interesting things are ahead. Verse 1 continues. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. I want you to know that the very last verse of chapter 37 said this. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, and captain of the guard. Now, at the start of this chapter, it repeats that verse, but it says that Potiphar bought him from the Ishmaelites rather than the Midianites. There's no contradiction here. The Ishmaelites bought Joseph from the brothers, and then somewhere along the line, the Midianites took possession of him and sold him off to Potiphar. The Bible was referring back to the original sale. You don't need to worry if it's a contradiction. It's just using that group of people who originally were involved in this. And the reason is because each of the people groups who were named in chapter 37, we had the Ishmaelites, we had the Midianites, and we had the Medanites. They were all named to do, reveal different pictures in the work of Christ. God is using those names and what is happening to show pictures of other things. When he wants to make one point, he's going to use one name. And then when he wants to make another point, he's going to use a different one. So paying attention to these subtleties is what opens up wide avenues of wisdom and design, which is otherwise seemingly concealed. Ishmael, if you remember, means God hears. This verse says it in the plural. So it is the Ishmaelites, or the people whom God hears. Potiphar is the one to buy him. His name means priest of the bull in Coptic Egyptian. This guy, Potiphar, is called Ishmitsri in Hebrew. Literally, he is called a man of Egypt. And this is an important phrase, and it's not some unnecessary addition. By saying that he is a man of Egypt, it's implying that foreigners were also used to fill high-level jobs in Pharaoh's court. Now, if this wasn't the case, the term would have simply been omitted. Well, why do you think that's important? The answer that it's important is there is already, right in this verse, right here, a precedent 
for Pharaoh making Joseph the leader of the country. It is not a foreign concept. And a lot of scholars will come and say, oh, what are the chances of a Hebrew taking over a position in Egypt? This verse preempts that. And that's why the term Ish Mitzri is used to this person. Nothing is said about what price this guy paid for Joseph. When his brother sold him, the amount was very specific. It was 20 pieces of silver. But now the amount is omitted. Having been bought by an official of Pharaoh, though, we can guess that the prophet was probably pretty good. But whatever price he paid, Joseph was a very good bargain for him initially, for Egypt eventually, and for the people of God ultimately. We have a great New Testament uh, parallel to this passage found in Ephesians chapter 6. Let me read this to you. Bond servants. A bond servant is an unpaid servant or a slave. Bond servant, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Think of Joseph and his work as I'm reading this. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. The ultimate goal of our work is not to please our, you know, our boss. The ultimate goal of the work is to be a representative of Jesus Christ and look forward to the rewards from him. So you think, I'm in a job, and I don't know what everybody's job here is, but if you have a job and it's just low level, and you're working doing your best at it, you are helping your supervisor initially, Eventually, the company is going to see that you're doing a good job. So think of he's initially helping the house of Potiphar. Eventually, Egypt is going to be blessed by this. And it's the same thing with you. Your company will be blessed and they will recognize it as long as you are honoring the Lord with your work. And who is ultimately going to benefit from your labors? Initially, it's your boss. Eventually, it's your uh, company. But ultimately, it will be you and your family it will be your children in your family, it will be your wife in your family, and it'll be your heritage after you. Unless the government takes it all in taxes, but you see that the, the point that I'm trying to make though, despite the government getting involved, is that there is always an initial reason for something. There's always an eventual reason for it, and there's always an ultimate reason for it. And if we can tie those together and say, I'm working for the ultimate purpose, it will help you get through the initial and the eventual which sometimes is displeasing. I know, I've worked with Jim back here for many years and there were times it was very displeasing. But if you have your eyes on Christ, then all of that displeasing stuff just goes away at the end of the day. And you can go home and you can be with your family and you can get back into the word and you can say, I'm doing this for a greater cause. All right, verse two. The Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Here in verse 2, the Lord, which means Jehovah, is reintroduced into the continuing narrative of the events of Israel. And I want you to know, he has only been mentioned six times in the last eight chapters, and yet he's going to be mentioned eight times in this one chapter. And how do I know that? I went back and I counted because I was curious. I hadn't seen the Lord other than a few times, and normally it's somebody talking about the Lord, not him actively getting involved in something. Six times in eight chapters and all of a sudden he's mentioned eight times in this one chapter. His name has been used very sparsely, but in the case of Joseph, his name is used to show that he is there, that he's tending to the destiny of his people. And because he's named here, we can know immediately that everything 
which has happened and which will happen is being directed by him for the sake of the covenant which was made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He's attending to the events to ensure that they unfold perfectly to fulfill the covenant. Picture Jesus and ultimately to lead to Jesus. With the naming of Jehovah, we are asked to simply stop and think on why. Why is he mentioned? Anytime you see that title there, Lord, you want to think, why is that mentioned instead of just the term God? All right? God in this instance is pointing us to Jesus in a unique way. And he's using now Joseph as a picture of the coming Christ, as he once did with Jacob. If you saw those Jacob's uh, sermons, you saw that his entire life was being used as pictures of Jesus. And now he's out of the scene, and Joseph has assumed that role in the biblical narrative. All right, because Joseph is, or Jehovah is with Joseph, it says that he was made a successful man. In the Hebrew, the term is ish matzliach, a man prospering. The favor of the Lord is a wellspring. It is a wellspring and it's a fountain of all prosperity. When his hand is on his child, that fountain will, not if, it will bubble over to become a river of blessing. And I'm not one to preach the prosperity gospel. You'll never hear me say that if you are attentive to the Lord and he is there with you, that you're going to be rich or you're going to have a BMW or you're, any of that kind of stuff. But he will bless you throughout your life. And when you receive your, your final inheritance, I assure you that every single thing that you do for him, you will say, I am so glad I did that thing for the Lord. It is a fountain and it is a bubbling up well of prosperity and blessing that is coming your way. If you will remain attentive to your duties and faithful to the Lord, just as Joseph is. And so it is with Joseph right here. He's a man prospering in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now there are slaves and then there are slaves. When a person was captured during war in these ancient times, they would normally do physical t uh, tasks and they would be subject to very harsh treatment. They may, may be sent into the heat of the crops or they may be sent out for cutting stone or given some other menial or non-gratifying work. Their clothes would have been mere rags and their food would have been very little and it would have been of poor quality. On the other hand, a slave who was chosen from a lineup like Joseph was and he was bought with money, would more likely have a job in a domestic environment. He'd have better clothes, he'd have kinder treatment, he'd have more nourishing food, he'd have all of the liberties that would be granted to anybody as a member of the house as he proved himself faithful. And so you can see that God's hand is on Joseph, even in the selection of how he becomes a slave. It's the case with Joseph. He was sold by his brothers but because Jehovah was with him, he fared better than what may otherwise have come about. Jameson Fawcett Brown gives a beautiful description and summary of Joseph's condition here. Let me read this to you. Though changed in condition, which he surely was, he was up there with his family and all of a sudden he's a slave in a house, Joseph was not changed in spirit. Though stripped of the gaudy coat that had adorned his person, he had not lost the moral graces that distinguished his character. Though separated from his father on earth, he still lived in communion with his father in heaven. Though in the house of an idolater, he continued a worshiper of the true God. Now, can we all do that too? If we have our circumstances suddenly change and we lose everything, can we say we're going to remain faithful to the Lord? That's just a question for you. You have to evaluate that internally. But I assure you that he is there and that type of behavior is the type of behavior above all that will be rewarded. 
when you can act like Joe backed it. You know, he lost everything. And then he said, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. And you get, uh, what is it, the book of Lamentations. It says, you know, his mercies are new every morning. Every single morning you get up and you had a bad day yesterday, you lost everything, and he's going to renew it. He's going to give you new mercies in the new day ahead. I assure you of it. And that is where the reward comes from, is when you're obedient, even in trials. Let's go to verse 3. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Now, when we read here that Potiphar sees that the Lord is with Joseph, it does not mean that Potiphar knew who the Lord was. It means that he sees that Joseph is blessed and that Joseph is a blessing. And so the naming of Jehovah is the Bible speaking to us about the situation, not the Bible speaking to us about Potiphar's knowledge. But regardless of his knowledge of the Lord, the Lord knows both Joseph and Potiphar, and he knows their relationship. In Genesis 12, verse 3, the Lord made this pronouncement over Abraham when he first called him. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jehovah spoke, and now 200 years later, Jehovah is carefully watching over that blessing. Potiphar blessed Joseph, whether he we see it directly or indirectly, by placing him in his home, and now his home is being blessed and prospering in the hand of Joseph. But the relationship is not one-sided, and this is where we can't expect the blessings without actually doing something, okay? It's true. God will bless those who bless his people but his people must also be a blessing. Joseph could have refused to work, and he certainly wouldn't have been blessed. He could have been a horrible worker, or he could have been a moody soul. He could have been downcast over his misfortunes, but instead he accepted the situation. He accepted that God is in control of it, and he made the best of it. And this is exactly what we, who are the descendants of Abraham by faith, are asked to do. Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, and he gave this advice for him and for those in his church. Here's what he says. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Today, at least for the time being, I already said this, we do not have slavery except for maybe the ever-increasing slavery of paying taxes to the government, all right? But we do have employees, employers, and we have supervisors, and we have other people that we're accountable to. With Joseph as the role model, and Paul's words to Timothy as our direction, we too are to count our masters worthy of honor, respect, and allegiance. And the reason is given. It's given both implicitly here in Genesis, and it's given explicitly in 1 Timothy, that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. If you profess to be a Christian and then fail to meet the standards expected of that great name, the result will be the diminishing of that name that we supposedly serve. And I have a perfect example I heard on the radio just a day ago. I'm driving down the road listening to the Joy FM, and uh, the guy says, you know, I was in traffic earlier, and there was a, uh, a pickup truck with a little Christian, you know, the little fish on the back. He said that guy was just angry and weaving in and out of traffic. And what kind of, what kind of example is he giving with that Christian symbol on the back of his truck? Now, he may have bought it from somebody that was a Christian and never took it off, and we don't know it. But the people that see that Christian symbol make the immediate identification with those hypocritical Christians. And I got to tell you something. When I first met the Lord, if anybody knows me personally here, 
you know that I'm very high strung. I get angry really, really easily. It's just in my nature. There's no doubt about it. If you've seen me for more than 10 minutes outside of the church, that's just who I am. I'm, I'm like this. And I said to myself, I have one of two choices as far as my car is concerned. I said, I can put absolutely nothing on my car about Jesus so that when I get angry in traffic, nobody will know that I'm a Christian. And I said, or, and you know what my car looks like and my car before this car, if you know what my cars look like. I said, I have another alternative. I can put Jesus from front to back, side to side, on the roof. I can have it completely covered in Jesus so even a dummy like me won't forget that I'm driving in a car with Jesus all over the car. And I said, I want the Lord to be glorified more than anything in the world. And so I'm going to take the second one. And I'm going to try my very best to be a person that lives up to the decals that are on the outside of the car while I'm on the inside of that car driving. So you have a choice. If you have those Christian symbols on your car, represent Christ. Okay? If you can't do it, take them off your car or just plaster your car so you never forget who you're representing. Okay? There you go. Verse 4. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. The Hebrew says that Joseph found grace in his sight. Grace. Grace is unmerited favor. That's the same word that Noah was given, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Hebrew word is chen. He was a slave in the house and he deserved no favor at all. So when it says that Joseph found grace in his sight, it's saying that Potiphar was bestowing it upon him. You can see the Lord's hand all over this because this guy Potiphar didn't need to do this. But because of the blessing of God upon Joseph, it's all just fitting so perfectly. He recognizes this ability and he recognizes the divine blessing upon this guy. And at this point, there becomes this mutual respect between the two. Grace is found from Potiphar and service is rendered from Joseph. The Geneva Bible ingeniously states the situation this way. Listen to this. Because God prospered him, meaning Joseph, and so he made religion serve his prophet. When I first read that, I got to tell you what, it shocked me. The Lord prospers Joseph, and so he makes religion serve his prophet. And I had to stop and think it through because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I don't want to get into the prosperity gospel here. And so I'm thinking it through, and then I thought that is exactly the way it's supposed to be. This is the polar opposite of the prosperity gospel. That name it and claim it, I claim a Mercedes Benz in Jesus' name, or I claim healing in Jesus' name. I see people do it all the time. I claim this in Jesus' name. And when it doesn't happen, they get frustrated at the Lord. It's all over Christianity today. That says, let profit serve your religion. It's expecting from God in order to serve, which by the way, never ends up happening. Rather, we are to serve God in hope and in anticipation of being blessed. Our religion is to be the basis for our prophet, not profit, the basis for our religion. So may the Lord bless you only so much as you serve him. And I mean that absolutely and honestly. When, when I say serve, that means more than just giving money to the church or going down and doing missionary work. I'm going to give you a little caveat so you know what I'm talking about. It is an acknowledgement of who he is. We can serve the Lord simply by talking to him and meditating on his word. That there is enough to be considered, in my eyes, serving the Lord. You are living in constant communication with the Lord. But may the Lord bless you only as much as you serve him. 
Who would expect a blessing from their boss when they didn't show up on time and when they ignored their boss and were grumpy to him all the time? Nobody. And who would expect that from the Lord without acknowledging him in all their ways? But we do, don't we? Add into this, get this, failing the Lord has nothing to do with serving the Lord. One does not exclude the other. Thus, grace is preserved. And I'm going to give you an example, Charlie Garrett. I fail the Lord all the time. I sit here and I think thoughts that I shouldn't think and I do stupid things in my life, but I pray that I serve him just as much as I fail him. And the grace is preserved through that premise. Lord, though I fail you with each beat of my heart, I know that grace remains because of your love for me. Help me to serve you in gratitude for that grace you impart. Help me to strive to honor you always and ceaselessly. Verse 4 continues. Then he made him an overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. Joseph has been faithful to the Lord his God, and now the blessing of his God is upon him. He has made the overseer of the house of Potiphar. The word for overseer here in Hebrew is yefkid. This comes from the word pakad, which means to tend to or to oversee or to superintend over something. The Greek version of Genesis, which predates Christ, it's called the Septuagint, translates this word as episkopos, which is where we get the word episcopal from. Epi, if you think of skin, epidermis, it covers your body, means over. Skopos is to see. Think of a telescopos, okay? So you got episcopos. In the New Testament, this word is used several times, and it is usually translated as a bishop or an overseer. This honorary position has been granted to him for his diligence and his faithfulness. In this capacity, he has now been granted complete authority and free will to exercise that authority over all matters related to the house. This distinction would be comparable if you remember uh, Abraham. He had a servant named Eliezer of Damascus. He was his chief steward. With a man like this in the house, Potiphar needs to do nothing but to feed himself and to just simply head out and do his duties under Pharaoh. I got to tell you what, I was thinking about this and uh, how you can be an overseer of whatever you do. Even if you're working for somebody else and somebody popped into my mind this morning and I, I pick on her from time to time, but it hasn't been for a couple sermons. So I'm thinking of uh, Kelly over here and she cuts hair. That's what she does for a living. And uh, she, if she does it faithfully, then her boss will need to do nothing except sit there and reap in the uh, the benefits of her work. And so she's sitting there and she maybe she's thinking about Samson the Nazarite and cutting away his power. I don't know what she thinks about while she's cutting people's hair. But uh, uh, if she does her job faithfully, then her boss can be like Potiphar and say, I have no worries in this place. I can give her my keys and she can lock up when I leave. If I get sick, I don't need to come in. And that's just one example of each one of you. Every single person here has responsibility to somebody else. And if you are faithful in those duties, man, is your boss blessed. And you are making the perfect example of a faithful Christian that Jesus wants his name on in the first place. There you go. Our second thought today, the blessing of the Lord. Verse 5. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for, for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. The amount of time that Joseph spent in the house before his advancement isn't given to us. But through hard work, through honesty, and above all, the Lord's blessing, he is made to be overseer. 
and Potiphar's choice is not left without reward. Jehovah's blessings and his graces adorn the entire house, even extending to what is raised in the field. And I was thinking about that. Did God actively go out and put some type of miraculous fertilizer in the field so that the fields would grow abundantly? My guess is no. I would say that Joseph's manner and his empathy towards the workers made them all the more diligent to work hard. If you have a good boss, you're going to be willing to work for him, aren't you? And if you've got a crummy boss, you just say, oh, I'll get that tomorrow. So my guess is that because Joseph is a blessing and he understands the situation of his own slaves that are under him, that he is treating them with empathy and they're actually producing. I'll tell you that the best equipment in the whole world when put into careless hands will not produce any profit at all. But an old bag of tools in the hands of a well-treated employee can bring about an immense surplus. Colossians 3 gives us wonderful insights into this particular truth. And whatever you do, he says, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, for you serve the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. See, if you're working for the Lord and not for whoever is above you, things are always going to go better and you will receive that promised inheritance. Now, I'm going to give you an example just because they came to mind. I'm not going to give their real names because, uh, uh, you know, somebody may know who I worked with at one time, but we'll call them Tim and Todd. I was uh, at a uh, wastewater plant for many years, actually a few of them. I, I was a supervisor over the wastewater operations. And um, I had one guy that was a mechanic and he had every possible tool that you can name on the face of the earth. And they were perfectly kept. They were clean. When he did his work, everything was spread out and it was absolutely perfectly neat. And yet he couldn't fix anything. He couldn't fix anything. And I had another guy that just had tools all over the place. And there'd be, he'd take apart a transmission, for example. And he'd just throw everything into a pile. And you'd think, there are 452,000 parts to that transmission. It'll never go back together. And yet he could take the entire thing and he could put it all back together. And that thing would work perfectly. There would be absolutely nothing wrong with it. And he'd give you a thousand or a 10,000 mile guarantee. That thing will never break down. And the, the point being that just because you have good equipment does not mean that you're going to do a good job. If you have old equipment, but you're a trusted employee, the good job is going to get done. That's, it's just the way of the world. So once again, we can refer to the blessing of Jehovah and Abraham here. And then it went down to Isaac and then it went down to Jacob. As one of the covenant sons, this same blessing now moves on to Joseph. Potiphar has been blessed. He's blessed Joseph. There's this mutual blessing that's going on. And so the entire house of Potiphar is blessed because of it. Verse six, thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and he did not know what he had except the bread he ate. Now, obviously Potiphar had other things that he did for himself, but the reason for accepting the bread which he ate is twofold. First, other than an invalid, or a complete sloth, and if you want to know what I mean by that, read, um, uh, it's Proverbs 19.34. Write that down and read that today. Unless you're an invalid or a complete sloth, uh, the feeding oneself is indicative of the most basic function known to man. It represents the voluntary maintaining of life, right? So that's why it says other than the bread he had in his house. But there is a second reason why that's noted in this verse. It's that the Egyptians had a caste system, which would preclude even eating with, much less being served by a Hebrew. And we're going to see this noted in Genesis 43. But other than an idiom concerning food, 
Joseph is granted complete authority over the entire house of Potiphar. Our third thought today, resisting the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Verse 6 continues. Did anybody get it? This is the first time in 97 sermons that I've started a third thought or a second thought or any thought in the middle of a verse. And you have to wonder, you have to ask yourself, why is it the way it is? Let me read it. Verse 6 continues. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Suddenly, right in the middle of a verse, an entirely new thought and direction comes into play. The break is so sudden and it's so obvious that one has to step back and they have to wonder, why wasn't this verse divided before this sentence? But God is the one who oversees his word and he determined for it to be otherwise. In the Hebrew, the first thought ends with a verb and then the second thought begins with a verb. And so it says here, Vehi Yosef Yefetoar Vefemare. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. This is the same set of words given to describe his mother, Rachel. In Genesis 29, verse 17, it said there, Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. This seemingly innocuous statement set up a course of events which would lead to seven years for Jacob as he worked off payment for one wife and then another seven years of trial and grief working off payment for a second wife, all because of the deception of his father-in-law. And in the similar way here, through the deception of another person, this same set of words is going to lead to some years of grief for Joseph, followed by his exaltation to the second highest position in all the land of Egypt. And when he's in that position, there are going to be seven years of abundance and then seven years of famine. Thus, the connection between Rachel and Joseph is one of symmetry and of beauty. The term used here to de uh, describe them signifies a fine shape accompanied by fine features. It is what others would consider as essential to the beauty of another. You'd never hear somebody say Charlie is of fine, beautiful of form and appearance. This is somebody that is actually very a model in today's terms is what's being described here. And guess what? This is the polar opposite to what we read about Jesus. If you've ever read Isaiah 53 of the coming Christ, what does it say? It says he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Although Joseph pictures Jesus, the contrast between these two is given to show us that Jesus' ministry was attractive, not because of the looks of the person, but because of the beauty of the message. Potiphar, like God the Father, looked for the care of the house. Potiphar's wife, like the Jews of Jesus' time, were looking for other things. Verse 7, And it came to pass after these things that the master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. Depending on how it's handled, and we know this, beauty can be a blessing or it can be a curse. And the one handling it does not need to be the one who possesses it, as is evidenced right here. When the beauty of one is mingled with the authority of another, it can complicate matters. We see it all the time. If you remember President Clinton or maybe military commanders, congressmen, senators, CEOs, even school principals or teachers, they've all wielded their authority over someone of beauty and it has cost one or both of them much grief and trouble. I'll tell you what, Monica Lewinsky has never gotten married and she still, people will write about her, how she still pines over not being the one to be with Clinton. And you think, 
all he had to do was just stick to his duties and be a faithful president and that lady's life wouldn't be ruined today. And you can see how beauty can affect everything that happens in your life. Everything. Potiphar's wife here is living in a land which has been well documented as one of loose morals and more so than you might think of the Arab world today where the basic choices are brown, blue, or black burqas. And the women now are not given the same freedom that they were given back then. That's, you know, the source of the beauty is not really, though, the source of the grief. Rather, the source of it is the wickedness of the human heart. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then it goes on to ask this question, who could know it? With freedom like this that we have back at that time and freedom that we have in our section of the world today comes something called moral responsibility. And it's something that most people lack. She saw Joseph and she wanted him. The verse says that she cast longing eyes on him. The desire of her eyes became the obsession of her soul. And I got to tell you what, this is something that pertains to every person here that goes on the internet. Because you know that when you click on the internet, you, I do an image search every day for a daily devotional I send out. I put an image that fits the devotional. And even with the highest, uh, you know, you have these things that you can put in to block certain things. You don't want them coming up. I have the highest block on my computer. And yet I'll type in something like, um, you know, God is love and up, up will come a naked woman. It, it's, it doesn't matter what you do today, something is going to come up that your eyes are going to see. And now you've got a choice. Can I, can I just click on that and take one look? You know, you go to, I don't care what news service it is. It could be Fox News or MSNBC or whatever you click on. There are going to be little ads over here for Thai women in, you know, uh, meet a Thai woman today. Well, am I going to see what she looks like? You know, and then you go down to the bottom and you've got all of the uh, Hollywood beautiful bodies things. And all that is going to do is it's going to start stirring you up and it's going to affect you. And once it's in there, it's very hard to get back out. Next time you come on, it's just easier to click on that. Every single one of us has to remember that this is a, a fallen world and that there are temptations all over the place. And we have moral choices to make. And I got to tell you what, work, the internet, all of these places, we're being barraged with that. Verse 8, but he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house and he has committed all that he has to my hand. Now, the chances are that she's a beauty too. Potiphar, as a member of Pharaoh's employ, could probably have had whatever woman he wanted in all of Egypt. Plus, all of the surrounding the events of the story would lead us to believe that she certainly was a good-looking lady. But he refused. There is a universal knowledge concerning this. The wife of a man belongs to that man. This is understood from the earliest pages of the Bible, but guess what? It's understood from the very terms husband and wife. And it doesn't matter what language you speak, there is a word for husband and a word for wife. It implies ownership. Joseph, Joseph here had no intention to violate the sanctity of the bond despite the beauty of the person or the position of the person. Regardless of what had been entrusted to him in all of Potiphar's house, Without any record of it being spoken in the pages of the Bible, Joseph knew that his authority did not reach to the wife, nor could it. And in acknowledgement of that bond to which he had no authority to sever, he calls on an even greater witness. Verse 9, there is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he, implying that somebody is greater than him, kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. Notice what he says here. 
This is something that we can say with full confidence to anyone in any type of situation when it comes to this. He elevates the authority beyond himself and he starts with his master. And then demonstrating that she is responsible to him as well. He doesn't skirt the issue by saying, well, we could get in trouble. And he also doesn't dismiss the issue by demeaning himself as unworthy. Well, I'm just a slave. And he doesn't delay it by simply putting it off, which is something that I know most of us will do from time to time about one thing or another. Sometimes it's the easiest path, but in this case, it would only aggravate things later. And so first he shows his authority. It is over the entire house. And then he shows the exception, the wife of his master. And then takes it right back to Genesis 2.24 implicitly. He doesn't quote scripture, but he's, this is what Genesis 2.24 says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Like I say, he didn't quote that, but he cited the intent of it by citing God's law. If he has a master and his master has a wife, then his master's wife is one with his master. To lay with her would then be to usurp his master's authority. So here we go. If you didn't know that that was in the Bible and your conscience has been seared by living in a world full of wickedness where people do this kind of thing, then you'd have nothing to stand on. And that's why it's so desperately important for you to know what the Bible says. If you know your word, then you can guard against these type of things when they come. And it doesn't have to be just be the New Testament. I mean, that's our prescriptive living, especially Paul's writings. You read those things and they will keep you sound and secure for your life. And I probably quoted Paul 10 times today already. But even the Old Testament will show us these things if we read them and apply them to our life. Verse 9 continues, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? In the Hebrew here, what he says is emphatic. He says, how to do this wickedness, this great one. This sin isn't against his master only, but it is also to sin against God. It is not true that we can only sin against God. People will say that, but the Bible bears out that we can also sin against one another. And not all sins against one another are necessarily sins against God. But more often than not, the two do overlap, and this is one of those times. It's still at least 200 years prior to the law of Moses, and yet it is an understood precept, not only to him, but to her as well. And so he invokes God as his defense against her advances. To sin against her husband may mean little to her, but to sin against God may cause her to consider the act. In this exchange, what he does is he uses the term Elohim for God instead of Jehovah. Elohim is the God of creation we see in the first sentence of the Bible. She is not a member of the covenant, and so there's no point in mentioning the covenant God, Yahweh. Instead, he goes right to creation, and he says, we are all members of this one family, and you need to consider him when you're considering what you're coming at me for. God has instilled this knowledge in the heart of men, and he hopes that she will reflect on it. Verse 10, so it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Now, it's something to have someone enticing you uh, to do something that you shouldn't do when you can avoid them. And we get into that type of situation from time to time. But it's another thing to be near them and not be able to get away from them. Like if you're stuck at work all day with somebody that continuously is asking to do something wrong. It may be in school. It might be at home, whatever. But that constant nagging of sin, which is crouching at your side, can wear down the strongest of people. I absolutely assure you of this. So do not think that you're immune. 
There's only one true refuge from it, and it is to keep your thoughts on what is morally right, to reflect on the conscience which is given by God, understanding that it is, in fact, from God who gives us those consciences. To ascribe a conscience or morality to anything other than to God will eventually lead to a violation of that conscience. Now, I say that because people argue, where do morals come from? And they say, well, it belongs to the society or it belongs to how we feel at a certain time or whatever. If you say morality and conscience comes from anywhere from, but from God, you will eventually violate that conscience. Jobs change, bosses die, governments fade away, and with them may go the supposed source of our conscience. But for those who know that God holds us accountable, there is the continued source of strength to endure even the most belligerent foes. And Joseph is such a person. He had his conscience in tune with God and he had his eyes on Jesus without yet knowing that it was Jesus to whom his eyes were directed. In Romans 13, Paul tells us where to find our covering, our covering and where to defend against attacks like this from the devil. He says, put on, just like a garment, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. We actually adorn ourselves with Christ and the devil cannot get through. Any other time though, he is going to be able to throw those darts at you and you'll find a way in. But if you keep Christ in your heart and live for him, you will get through those things. Now today's 10 verses are as much a moral lesson for us as they are pictures of Christ. But without going into too much detail like I normally do on that second aspect, I still want to show you how in fact these verses do in fact point to Christ. Verses 1 through 6 are a precursor to exactly the same picture we're going to see again when Joseph becomes the ruler of Egypt. He was sold by his brothers into Egypt, which is the land of the Gentiles. Jesus was, in essence, sold by his brothers to the Gentiles. When they rejected him, his message was carried off to the nations, just as Joseph was carried off to Egypt. Paul explains that in Romans 9 through 11. The Ishmaelites, the people whom God hears, carried Joseph to Egypt, which means double distress. The Gentiles, whom God hears because of the gospel, have carried that gospel into the whole world. The Jews had the law, but the Gentiles had nothing. They're in double distress by the name of Egypt. You can see how that fits in. There in the land of the Gentiles, the message of Jesus will flourish. Potiphar, whose name means priest of the bull, pictures the completed work of Christ and thus God on his throne. He receives Joseph, just as the New Testament shows us that God the Father received the work of Jesus Christ. You can see that in Acts 2.36 and in Hebrews 9.24-26. Potiphar is called the captain of the guard. He's the one who would execute judgment. In the New Testament, the Lord is said to be the one who executes judgment. That's found in Jude 1.15. The Lord was with Joseph, it says. The spirit of the Lord rests on Jesus. We see that, for example, in Luke 4. In all that Joseph did, the Lord made him to prosper. The same thing, using exactly the same Hebrew word, is used of the coming Christ, once again in Isaiah 53. It says there, He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Because of his faithful service, Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight. In his life, Jesus is said to have increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, Luke 2.52. Eventually, Potiphar made Joseph overseer of his house. In 1 Peter 2.25, using the same word as the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says this of Jesus. 
For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Potiphar grants Joseph complete authority over the house. In Matthew 28, 18, because of his faithful service, Jesus states that all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Now, if there were one or two similarities between Joseph and Christ in these six verses, we could say, well, that's a coincidence. But there are way too many. Every word and every verse just drips of Jesus. Everything finds its parallel and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And then from the middle of verse 6 on, a new picture is revealed. Joseph is called handsome in form and appearance, and things suddenly change from that point on. And next week is the continuation of that story and what it is showing us, and we're going to look at it in detail. It may seem a little bit odd to stop in the middle of a picture like this, but God is the one who began a new picture in the middle of a verse. So what seems odd actually flows perfectly. And it's going to come out exactly as it should as we continue on with the life of Joseph, a life dedicated to the Lord and one which looks forward to the life of Jesus Christ. So here we are. We're looking at all of these stories. We're learning moral lessons and interesting facts. But above all, we're learning about his heart, the heart of God, which is most revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so I'd like just one more minute to take this opportunity just to explain to you the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, why he came and how it's pertinent to you. Very simple. The Bible says we've sinned. If you say I've never sinned, I'm going to have to just set you off to the side of the room and beat you up because you know you have. You've told a lie. You've, you've, uh, uh, you've done something which has offended a holy God. I wouldn't really beat you up. But we have sinned. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. We die because we've sinned. But more importantly than just dying at the end of a life of 70 or 80 years, we died spiritually the moment that our first father sinned. And we are born spiritually dead. There is no connection to God in us. And that needs to be fixed before our physical death comes. Because if it's not, that spiritual disconnect will last for all of eternity. So the wages of sin is death. But the Bible goes on with the beautiful three-letter word, but. But. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Can't earn it. A gift is something you can earn. If I give you something of great value and I say I'll give it to you for a dollar, it's still not a gift. It's a really good deal, but it's not a gift. God is giving you a <laughs> gift by giving you his son. I'm going to take your unrighteousness and I'm going to put it on my son at the cross. And I'm going to give you his perfect righteousness on you for all eternity. So that when I see you, I don't see all the bad things you've done in your life. All I see is that perfect garment of white, which is representing my son Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And it says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not maybe, could be, possibly, they will be saved. You call on Jesus Christ as the Lord, say, I want what you have. I want to be forgiven of my sin and I want to be redeemed by the blood of the lamb and he will redeem you by the blood of that precious lamb. And to prove that all of this is true, he brought that man back out of the grave. The wages of sin is death. Death couldn't hold him because he had no sin of his own. All of your sin is washed away in his grave and he's back to life proving that he was without sin and that he is God incarnate. What a wonderful deal. And it doesn't cost you anything except a little humility. I want you, Jesus. I'll live for you as best as I can. And as you give me strength in the future, I'll pursue you. And then I'll put decals all over my car to show people how much I love you.
We've got a closing verse here today from Proverbs chapter 6. Think of Joseph right here and what's going on right here. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not get burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not get seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. Joseph was strong and resolute. He avoided that pitfall right there. Next week is Genesis 39, 11 through 23. It's called False Accusations and Unjust Punishment. Sound like anything from the New Testament? False Accusations and Unjust Punishment? Guess what? That's our 98th Genesis sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. But those marvelous things aren't coming unless you do call on him. So just do it today if you've never taken the time to ask Jesus to forgive you. What a great God. Our poem today is called The Overseer of the House. Now Joseph down to Egypt was taken, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian looked at Macon, him a slave in his house. Joseph's prospects looked narrow. He bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph in both days and nights. And he was a successful man because he took care. And he was in the house of the Egyptian, his master, tending to it and keeping it from disaster. And his master saw the Lord was with him in a way very grand, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him ever so dutifully. Then he made him overseer of his house, a future looking bright. And all that he had, he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer, of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house. For Joseph's sake, the deal wasn't half bad. Then the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in the house and in the field, certainly making him glad. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had, there was no care. Except for the bread which he ate at the table he manned, Joseph was a servant certainly beyond compare. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, something that in his duties would cause interference. And it came to pass on these after these things that his master's wife on Joseph longing, cast longing eyes. And she said, lie with me, for you my heart sings. But in this matter, Joseph stayed alert and wise. He refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in this house. He trusts me with his life and he has committed all that he had to my hand, even though. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you. Because you were his wife, so don't you even try to seduce me with such an idea, I am through. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God when he is ever with me, seeing me in each step that I trod? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Instead, her advances he cast far away. Sin is a trap deadly and consuming in our life. If fed, it can only lead to sadness and death. It leads us down paths of turmoil and strife. In the end, it will steal our souls at our last breath. But there is a cure for our plight in this world of sin. Jesus is that cure. He, our righteousness. Through the cross, he scored the marvelous win. And now he is ours when we his great name do profess. He is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He is the one who leads us in a glorious parade. And when the names are called on heaven's honor rolls, we will be there because of the profession in Jesus we made. Let us magnify our God and our King 
He is Jesus, the Lord mighty and victorious over the grave. For all of eternity, let our joyous hearts sing. Yes, he is our wondrous Lord, mighty to save. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful picture of Joseph and uh, how he looks forward to Jesus. But today I'd like you to thank you for the moral lessons which are included in there as well. I know that personally I struggle with moral issues and I'm sure each person sitting here today struggles with them. We see things that pop up in front of our faces on the internet and we cannot control them. And uh, I would ask that you would strengthen our resolve to be uh, able to turn away from those things quickly and not get pulled into those traps. And whatever the trap is, it, there are addictions that fill our lives in a thousand different ways and we can only release them if we can put our trust in you. Other than that, they're just going to be replaced with something else worse and, and uh, more distracting. So we ask that you be with us just as you were with Joseph and guide us and help us equally to be honorable stewards of what you've given us so that we can be good for our supervisors, for our companies, and ultimately for the family around us and for the people that uh, we live with who will be the uh, blessing, uh, the ones to receive the blessings that we uh, uh, we obtain because of your hand upon us. We thank you for those things and we look forward in anticipation to Thanksgiving in the week ahead and for the good food that will be laid out on the table in front of us. But above all, we look forward to the anticipation of the coming of Christ and may that day be soon. No, Lord, may it be soon. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.